Welcome back to the podcast, and I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Deirdre Brower-Latz. She is the principal at Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, England, um, and we talk about corporate holiness and social theology. Uh, there's a great chess analogy in this episode, so listen for that. And then she asked me this question that I just can't get out of my head. She, she asked me in the episode, where are, where's your congregation mapping onto scripture right now? And I, and you'll hear my answer. And it was kind of an off the cuff, but I mean, I've been, been thinking about that ever since and really meditating on it. I don't know that I have a clear answer, but um, it's definitely something I've been journaling about and um I guess I want to challenge you with that same question, especially as you listen to this interview and then as you're continuing to process this last year, um, where would you see that your faith community, whatever faith community you are a part of, is mapping onto scripture? I think you're really going to enjoy it and it's a lot of fun. It's a long episode, but there's really, really good stuff, so... Enjoy the episode. We've been trying to tell better stories about women and clergy and the church because we really need to tell better stories. Instead of just complaining about it, what if we flood the airwaves with something different? Welcome to the podcast. I want to, how do you properly pronounce your name? Oh yeah, it's tricky. It's Deirdre. Oh, it's, it's butchered over here as well. It's an Irish name actually. And so English people really struggle to get it right. I'm excited oh. about this. No problem. Nice to meet you. Yeah. And where, where are you? I'm in Michigan, um, yeah. just outside of Detroit on the West side. Yeah. So I, I can get to Canada in about an hour, which is fun. That's lovely. And do you do you you go up often? Uh, I've been over a few times. You know, after nine eleven, it got trickier to get. You know, it used to be because where we're at in Detroit, you could just show your driver's license, and we'd go over. People go over to Canada for the day, but then with nine eleven, now you have to have a passport, and well, and then right now nobody's going anywhere. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, are you in (laughs) lockdown where you are as well? We have, we've got a little more freedom um, where we're at. We're trying to be super careful. We're just, it's just really urban and you know how, yeah, yeah. when you're urban like that. Yeah, yeah, it's mad here. We're, I'm also in the heart of a city that's got a really high rate of infection. So, yeah. Are you in lockdown? Yeah, we are. Yeah, we're not. Um, so no non-essential travel. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. So we're all universities and higher education places are open and so some of our team are in but we don't have to be okay and so that's been part of it um just the sense that we've encouraged our team to stay home if they can right and it's people who really can't do their job off-site who have gone in even that is variable because schools are all closed and we have quite a young team of parents and so right a lot of them were just like, well, I'll just come in when you can. <laughs> it's pretty tricky. It is. But it's just very difficult, isn't it? It's I think it's like all of the unknowns of of our day in some ways. Yeah. Right. It's a 
So what's your position right now at, you're at Nazarene College, right? So it's the Nazarene Theological College, yeah. And I'm the principal there, which is the, I mean, it's the equivalent of a president in the US, but it's, gotcha. I have all the responsibility, but none of the power that presidents have. It's the, the structure is quite different. And so it's a little bit more collegial here in how we operate institutions. So is that just a structural difference from UK to the States? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a probably cultural structural difference, I guess. So the principles here tend to be working as first amongst equals. It's not dissimilar to our political system, really. When it's working well, the idea is that you're one amongst many who are making decisions. Um, it just so happens that you become the person who has... Um, like the buck stops with me really right but I'm actually very limited in the right kind of way from making decisions willy-nilly for the institution it's all about kind of consultation collaboration engagement connection now I guess not every principal acts that way but that's right. certainly the thrust of my leadership in our even in our system of appointment the faculty have a voice in who gets appointed as the principal I don't know what happens with presidents it's probably more the board but you know there's quite a lot of processes and I know like in America now there's quite an extensive search process for people but I think just the heart of the role is just a touch different so your principal and then you teach too right yeah, I teach in the area of social and practical theology and so a range of things. So actually, about 30 seconds before I met you, I was on a call with somebody about preaching, uh, teaching an independent study in preaching right now. And I've been teaching a class called Resilience in a time of COVID uh, with another colleague around practical engagement with the church and our response to coronavirus and I've just finished last semester teaching social justice and so I keep my hand in um, and then I'm in part of kind of urban mission programs where I dip in and out of master's degrees and also a program that we're running around environmental theological framing of thinking and so yeah I'm teaching in a sprawling area but roughly speaking it's about kind of Wesleyan theology and how it connects with justice practices and contemporary worldviews really right I saw in your bio that that your emphasis was social theology which of course I mean I love Wesley mm-hmm. um, the idea of this the, co- the coherency of social theology in light of our centralized state um, and I'm not I'm not sure how different it is in the UK from here but that that idea that the state has taken on the responsibility of shaping society and almost like the church has outsourced it yeah I see what you mean yeah it's interesting isn't it so I think like I am very warm towards the idea that the Holy Spirit works in ways and means beyond the church and so that's prevenient right and so for me I think that the state can be an agent of good is quite a powerful notion it doesn't mean it is always good but I am really warm in Britain say you know I'm very warm towards the National Health Service the the vision that you have that we have as a country here that every person 
deserves treatment for health conditions at the point of their need, no questions asked. That's very powerful. And actually, it came from a Christian ideal that every person should be met with dignity. You know, this, at the same time, the church becoming organized around a half past 10 in a morning service of worship that doesn't engage with neighborliness or welfare of others or transformation of communities because Jesus is doing stuff like that's not a good abrogation and so yeah I think that tension of always saying like actually what's the what's the role of the church what's the role of the state how do they connect how do we amplify the voices of righteousness you know the righteous gentile idea who are the people who are after God's heart who wouldn't name Jesus as Lord, but who actually doing justice. Right. Um, yeah. Caring for creation, being a conscience to the church. Like who are those people who are calling us back to our best selves as well? I, I think that's a really open conversation for us. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that, I think it's important. And I, well, especially here in the States that we're like, we're torn between the two and not some who feel like, well, we sold our souls. We partner with, um, you know, the unsaved, so to speak, or whatever, those who don't mm. recognize Jesus as Lord, even though they're doing good. Uh, mm. And then those who are saying together, we can all, we can come together, the church and the secular society and together um, they can help us usher in this, mm. this idea of justice, even if they don't know that that's what they are doing. Yeah, or sometimes they do articulate it very well, right? They they have a vision for a society that's good and that treats every person as as good or as as potential or as having aspiration and dreams. And sometimes the church needs to remember that that vision is a spark of God in them, right? Like people are created in the image of God. And so the things right. that have stirred in people a vision for society that's better than the one that we have, for me, that's the Christian job is then to say, Hey, us too. Wow. And here's why, like we have a reason for this, that's beyond just a humanist approach and that takes sin seriously. And so we don't assume that there's no brokenness in the world. And so I feel like if we could figure out a really healthy way of having a conversation with neighbors around some of the things that we share instead of the things we disagree with, we'd probably be quite incredible in extending our witness to people because right. it would look a lot like a language of love in a different way, I think. Yeah. I, and I would like to see that amplified and that, again, that idea of provenient grace and that every time we see that spark of goodness, that we focus in on that and recognize, okay, that is the spirit doing something. Yeah. The individual might not understand that's what's happening, but us who have the spirit, we, we should be able to recognize that any good that's being stirred up within them, that that's the spirit previously working in their lives. So, yeah, I had a really interesting conversation with a colleague the other day because he pointed out that the fruit of the spirit, you know, that we talk about a lot, love, joy, peace, patience, all that list from Galatians is the fruit of the spirit. And I was like, well, yeah, of course, you know, like we all know that. And he's like, yeah, but like we act like it's the fruit of the church or the fruit of the Christian and I was like, yeah, you're right, we do. And he said, he's learning. He, he ministers amongst um, Iranian converts to Christianity now. And it's just like this sprawling, dynamic church that's birthing all of these other churches. And he just said, you know, actually, he'd felt really 
assured in some ways that the Holy Spirit was doing all of these things outside of the church or Christians and that naming it as the activity of the Holy Spirit helped them see it differently and I was really I was very moved and I had to kind of do a little mental reminder for myself because I was like oh yeah of course this is true it isn't something that we clutch to ourselves it's much more about naming that which we see or like that Athenian conversation that Paul has at the Acropolis right like the stuff that you're doing I can tell you it's Jesus but you know anyway yeah really it is fascinating what's going on in the world around us that's for sure uh and that's a lot more hopeful than looking at the other stuff so yeah that's right yeah yeah (laughs) doesn't mean you don't name the other stuff I think but yeah that's right it's it's really hopeful and actually I think really optimistic about grace and you know that's a very Wesleyan approach to the world I think it's not pessimistic about God's ability to do stuff like thank God now you were born in Canada I was yeah I was born in Wainwright in Alberta my parents are both Canadian my dad is an Albertan born and bred and my mum is from all over the eastern parts of Canada and the states actually so she was born in Woodstock Ontario but grew up between Toronto, Halifax, Patterson, New Jersey. I'm probably missing three or four. Her her parents were pastors. Then my grandpa became a district superintendent and then a missionary to South Africa, Nigeria and Germany. And so, yeah, the kind of DNA is a little bit global and mixed and then very earthed in a farming community in northern Alberta. So you grew up in the church and you grew up specifically in the Nazarene church yeah that's right yeah I was like in the womb going to a Nazarene church now it was a plant in in Wainwright and so how Nazarene Nazarene it was I don't know like it was planted by two female um, evangelists though which is very Nazarene seems to me Mm -hmm. and my grandparents and my great-grandparents were part of the plant and so yeah I grew up within the Nazarene church both in Canada and then we we moved between Wainwright and Winnipeg and Britain and we kind of did this triangle <clears throat> a couple times and so also the Nazarene church in Britain then which is quite different than a North American version right I do, and I do want to talk about that a little bit too because I think it'll, it'll help people to see if they can visualize the church in different contexts mm-hmm. um, so when did you send your call to ministry then was it early on or was it later I've had a series of nudges, I think. So the call specifically towards pastoral leadership, pastoral ministry was later on, probably. I was already at college. I had a very distorted view of females in leadership. I think notwithstanding that the church had been planted by women and that my dad is a kind of Christian feminist, I would say, an advocate for women in leadership. And my mum is an incredibly competent leader herself. Pastoral leadership in my head was like quite frumpy, lots of cats, <laughs> probably single. Um, it was a pretty narrow view. I just couldn't imagine quite what it would look like in my life. That wasn't my vision for who I wanted to be. And so I was quite closed, but for, it was a series of circumstances that made me end up doing a year of theology because of an immigration situation I was in as an immigrant to Britain in my late teens 
And when I came into the theology space, just feeling like, oh, this is how this makes me feel alive. And then over the course of my studies, really, different people saying, you know, Deirdre, you've got a gift or you're called, I think you're called or those kinds of things. And then actually I was at a conference in Germany where Tom Neese, who has just passed away, and he he preached in such a way that it was like God was just pointing directly at me. It was quite challenging to say yes. I, I didn't know what that would mean. I didn't have examples in Britain at that point of ordained women. So it was a bit perplexing for me and the church, I would say. And also I was in a relationship at the time that then he didn't feel he could marry a woman in ministry. And so that became quite a devastating emotional journey immediately. And so it was quite complex. But yeah, it was later on, I would say that I felt vocationally called to pastoral leadership and whatever that would look like. And I, that call was in the context of justice and compassion. And so those things have always been dovetailed, like preaching, pastoring, loving people, but also kind of transformative community experiences have always been attached to each other. And that kind of idea of being, a, I suppose, an agent of grace in hard places that's where I landed and so I've always been pastoring and living so here I'm speaking from my community in Britain which is an urban deprived community as we would describe it so and urban it's not quite the same way America's urbanized but it's a back-to-back terraces in East Manchester where the differential life expectancy between where we're living here and where the college is based say is 10 years and so it's quite a stretching place so they're all like woven together you know the call saying yes what it was to it's all a mishmash but early 20s I would say so when you when you went to university what uh well I guess I don't know how it works there did you have to declare a major and then change it down the road no. So I was already in this theology program doing, I was just going to do a certificate in theology before I came back to Canada actually and did something else. Okay. And I just stayed on, I transferred from certificate to degree, but yeah, we don't have majors. The The subject that you're studying is pretty much it. So theology, yeah, I was theology and pastoral studies is the first degree I did. Um, but that would be quite common, you know, that you'd have quite a significant focus in one area right away that's the British system is quite vastly different than the North American one around a lot of these things yeah (laughs) different choices are made earlier I'd say so like in America you've got this genius at breadth which is wonderful so you know you do all of these subjects all the way through it was the same in Canada so you know I did my 11 subjects in grade 12 or whatever in Britain after you're 15, 16 years old, you then make a choice about a direction of travel, humanities or sciences, really. Mm. Some people do both, but unusually, I would say. And then you do two years doing very in-depth study of these of these subject areas. And there are only four or five of them that you're then studying really deeply. And then that kind of splitting of your ways carries on into university now it's changing a bit there's a lot more interdisciplinary stuff here now um, but it does it produces a different way of looking at the world so the the two worldviews that sit alongside each other are just slightly different as well and there's probably merits in both I was I've done both I did 
my grade 12 in Canada in French and then my A levels in England in English and there's definitely things that I thought oh that was good there and oh that was good here so you know it's just the way life shakes out isn't it <laughs> right it is you were ordained in in uh, England and you pastored there too right yeah so I was ordained um, I was district youth pastor and pastoring a congregation in Bristol and then um, pastored for a long time in Manchester where I am now and I still live in proximity to that congregation and then it was only in 2012 which is feeling like a longer and longer time ago now but right. in 2012 I became the principal which is when I stopped pastoral role. I want to talk a little bit about the difference in the context then because mm. I think it, it will help like listeners to sometimes they get stuck and they just know their own context mm-hmm. um, especially here in the states uh, maybe they own like they only understand an urban context of the church or a rural context of the church um, and so it might even help them if they could just begin to think beyond the states and mm-hmm. uh, and recognize that God is moving and doing things but at mm-hmm structurally it looks different so we talk about like what did the church look like in Canada for you a little bit and then in, in England so maybe some of those differences this is really very much my perspective I think so just to right. be clear like other people's version of this reality might sound a bit different but the Canadian church was not is not dissimilar to many of the churches that I've been to in the states it was you know, 70 to 100 people. One of the ones we attended was larger than that, but by and large, it was a group with strong kind of familial connections to each other quite often, very much centered around Christian things, I would say, you know, church and I want to say caravans. Does that sound right? Some sort of uniform movement that was... Yeah, scouting. Children scouting type thing, but a Christian version of that. Right. And then Bible studies and then youth groups. And it was very much an attractional model, I would say. You know, you come and join us and you come and convert like this. There were these kind of peak points in the year, camps or what have you, that you were to participate in. And they often had emotional fervor attached to them. Like a lot of that is very similar in Britain. You know, the British church was started by people who'd had experiences like that in America. And so the British churches here, some of them would be very similar, slightly different hymns, different music, but a similar pattern of attraction and so on. I guess where I think the difference lies in how the church engages with culture a bit more. And as you were saying earlier, you know, some of the differences in the kind of political framework, the geopolitical framework, that's changed the way the church engages with the world so that the Christians here in Britain are the minority, very much so. Now, on a census, there might be like 60 to 70% who would tick the Christian box. When they do that, what they mean is they're not Muslim or they're not Hindu. But they don't mean that they're people who worship regularly or who really have a living faith. And so the living faith part of Christianity in Britain, depending on what survey you read, would be like 6% to less than 2%. I mean, that's amazing. Wow. And so 
the way the church engages with the world around it is slightly different like it has to talk more (laughs) it has to be earthed and rooted in a community slightly differently it has to figure out the interplay between um, how it opens its doors to people and what expectations it puts on people and what agenda it has in conversations it has to navigate who's the boss um, who has the right to speak it has to figure out ways of earning credibility in a different way and all of those things are different like people aren't necessarily honored in quite the same way now again it's short all of this is shorthand it's really difficult to describe partly because there's many dimensions to church in Britain and that we do have a state church so the church of England has bishops in parliament uh, in the house of lords like it's all a bit mad when you think about it so you think this tiny percentage of the population has an inordinate influence politically for example still right and the queen um is the head of the church like so the head of state is also deeply woven into church stuff and she is very deeply Christian. So it's a really interesting space and it's very confusing and complex. And a Nazarene who transports themselves into Britain discovers that the church here now is much more open, possibly evangelical. People are not, I'm trying to do justice to my peers here. Um, like very sincere Christians, but also having to live out our faith in really secular environments, really secular environments where prayer isn't welcomed or understood, or Jesus isn't known other than an echo or is mocked, where or revered, but not as Jesus, right? Because Muslims take Jesus very seriously, but he's not divine. And so there's just, it's a really very complex environment. And that you know, American cities, I think, are more and more like Britain. So some cities, particularly, I when I've been to them, I'm like, actually, Seattle isn't that different in flavor. Or Canadian cities, Vancouver, Toronto, Calgary. And, you know, there's lots of questions, I think, in Britain around how do you, as a church, engage, declare, be good news? How do you have credibility again when you've lost it? How do you show that you have meaning or purpose? Or how do you love the community around you well? How do you interrupt your own understanding of the gospel and let Jesus do a new thing? Like all of those are really live questions for the church now. And they're good questions and important ones. And the justice questions are also attached to that, right? Like how is the church upholding righteousness? Right. What does it mean to speak for the poor? What does it mean to encounter poor people? on their own terms what about racial integration or what about recognizing the sins of history all of those kinds of questions are very live I would say we're not as divided as America in my experience so we don't shy away from those conversations because nobody's going to leave the room screaming (laughs) in quite the same way as you might in America or feel like you can't fit because we're quite dialogical um, in a lot of these spaces and so it's just a very different place and it's not all good not at all and it's not all bad it's just different and right. I think we're learning lessons so like where I'm sitting here 29% of the community around me is Muslim and so 
my neighbours, the, the neighbours actually I have probably the most in common with around moral code are Muslims. Right. Which is really fascinating. And so then again, that conversation we were having earlier, like, wow, what do we do with that? What's God saying through this? My my neighbour down the road, this Muslim lady, Koser, if she's the first at your door with baked goods, if she knows somebody's poorly in the street, she's incredibly generous. We swap tools. You know, she's the first to come down with a chainsaw to say, or she volunteers her husband to do all these little tasks. And, you know, you just think, wow, this is like amazing neighborliness. So then what does Jesus offer that's not just neighborliness? Like there's just loads of questions that emerge. And like most of my neighbors in my street have zero interest in faith, zero, Mm -hmm. zero interest in Jesus, except that my next door neighbor, a very old lady, who I've lived, I've lived in this street now for 16 years, 17 years almost, about four years ago for the first time invited me in for a cup of tea. And then now one of her daughters lives in Kansas City and has breast cancer. And Nell has asked me to pray for her. That's like a very long time to earn a conversation about spiritual things. Right. (laughs) Right. That's what it takes here. You can't just come and go. And, um, my other neighbors have a little boy who's just beautiful but has been born with dwarfism you know talking about their needs and his life and future like these conversations that are now happening after like yeah 15 16 17 years like that just it it does something you can't assume anything about your right to speak I think that's a big thing here right absolutely and we we're so mobile and people just don't stay in a, in a place long. And so it takes longer and longer to earn the right to you know, speak into someone's life. Yeah. You really have to be willing to put down roots. and Yeah. And America is very mobile, aren't you? You move city, country, state really quite easily in some ways. Yeah. And you follow jobs. And I think there's something really noble and daring and risky about that. Like, if I could bottle some of the American attitude and sprinkle them over Britain, I would. Like the kind of can-do, risk-taking, dynamic, the, the entrepreneurial spirit. Like there's so many beautiful things about that. But particularly for pastors and leaders, I suppose, like how do you become wise in a place without staying? I think that's really challenging. And how do you love a place through the honeymoon through satisfaction into hate like genuinely about year seven I'd have given anything to move and year now like near year 17 it's doing my head in again because litter is really bad right now and so how do I stay and learn to love a place and engage with it properly and have depth and try and bear witness and you know as I said like if I'd have moved at year seven Nell would have never had a conversation on prayer you know and so you just think well man but it's hard work and I'm not saying I'll never move but I do feel like at the points where we've been tempted to move Andrea and I I've kind of said should we move and I really felt like I had a pretty awful experience John where I felt like God said to me one day this is I don't know not that long ago really shamefully but there were two things God said when I was all of this, oh, I'd like to move. It's awful to live here right now. My neighbors are a nightmare. There's lots of drugs in the street again. It's just doing my box in. And I felt God say, firstly, Deirdre, like if you're going to stay, stay well. 
and I was a bit taken aback because I was like, oh. And I felt like there were some big things there, like for me, like if, oh, so I have permission to move if I really want to, but stay well, what does that mean? And I just felt really convicted. I, I think that's the only word I can use. Like I just wasn't loving, I just wasn't loving my community anymore. I'd gotten jaded and tired of it and it was hard work and I just felt knackered. And so I felt like I was very convicted. And so I had to start to think about God. And then the other thing was, I at one point could describe my street really well, like door by door, but I described it kind of like in labeling, like, so the old lady who's got a dementia, the young couple who are always screaming, the young couple whose kid keeps up at night, the party house, you know, and I kind of did this. And I, again, I felt like God was really just like pulled me up and was just like, Deirdre, really? You think that's how I see these people? And I was like, no, probably not. And so I went door to door um, <laughs> and not done all the doors and just was like, uh, actually, because it's so dirty here, it was very easy. I just went door to door and said, do any of you fancy picking up the litter on Sunday morning? And so my name's Deirdre. I'm at number 12. And they would introduce themselves. And then we gathered a little group of us on the Sunday morning and picked up the litter in our street. That I don't know how long ago it was now, but quite probably five or six years now. But actually that generated their neighborliness in a different way. And it was really because God was like, I know these people by name. And so that's where I'm at now. Like I'm like, okay, so my neighbors, I can name all of my neighbors. And I could tell you a bit about this story, but they're no longer like the one family at one point I'd have been like they're they're the drug family and now I'm like actually I know their names and their ages and I know that they have a child and a dog and that they love my new chocolate Labrador puppy and they're actually really good neighbors because they don't want the police in the street (laughs) now has that stopped them from being drug dealers it hasn't at all but it has changed my perspective on on their life and on God's perspective on their life it doesn't mean the sin isn't a sin it's not that at all but it switched something different and I feel like if I'd have left I'd have probably been starting all over again in another place with labeling and not deep love it was hard I was embarrassed about it actually honestly I was like oh my goodness here I am this you know I pray and think and hear God has to teach me all over again that people are known by name and held in his hand and their hairs are counted my goodness yeah how would I lost sight of that I don't know it gets overwhelming 2020 didn't help (laughs) no that's true and you know tiredness doesn't help us and busyness doesn't help us and feeling like we're God doesn't help us and trying to earn our place doesn't help us like there's loads of things that would interrupt us even hearing God convict us I guess and you're right like being exhausted in general all of us I think are holding a lot and then there's that little idea of like how do you learn to be merciful and gracious to yourself as well that's that's a big learning curve I want to think about think about this idea of what you're talking about connecting with your community in that sense of you know learning to earn trust are there any books that you would recommend for reading for people who are trying to move in that direction and they're just trying to gain new perspective oh that's a good question 
it would depend on what role you have in life. Like if you're a pastor leader, then I think reading Eugene Peterson and the pastoral trilogy is probably the best place to start there. I think that is actually the thrust of his theological framework. I think that if you're really willing to be challenged theologically, as in read somebody who's just not going to map onto you theologically, but will really challenge you to think about why you think. Um, there's a book, Being Interrupted. It's fairly new and it's Anglican. Um, it's British, obviously, but it's a really interesting perspective. Now, it will mess with your head. Like if you're, <laughs> if you're very conservative theologically, it will, it will properly sh- challenge you. And I think that's right. Like, but some people hate being challenged like that. And so I'm just putting that there. You know, it's not easy. And it really does push at some of where Nazarenes would be, I think. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't read it. It just means you read it with your eyes wide open. I think if I were trying to think about books that would help me see the world this way, you know, how does God see the world and what books help you get there? There's this book of sermons by Barbara Brown Taylor called The Healing Word, which is very good, I think. There's um, another vicar who writes about breathing, um, John Pritchard, his name is Henri Nouan. I don't know how Americans say it. You never say his name the same way as me, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, I think we say, we say Nouan. Okay, so. there you go, Nouan. Yeah, I, I love him. He's yeah. one of my favorites, so... You know, it's, it's sometimes about the trajectory of thought. I mean, there's a lovely little book that I read years ago by Stephen Sojourn, I think his name is, called Servant Warfare. Have you read that? It's just brilliant. I, I haven't... I'm familiar with the author. I never... I didn't yeah. read that one, but he did yeah. uh, 101 Ways to Reach Your Community or um, and Conspiracy Servant Warfare and yeah, yeah, stuff like that. And I think I, you know, those books really inspired me pastorally to do some of the stuff I did. Um, I think there's um, the New Parish Collective stuff, which is very powerful around connecting to communities right. and bearing witness. And I actually think some of um, my, Michael Frost about oh. ordinary time. And Alan Hirsch um, around the exile community stuff. I'm not big into the idea that we're in exile. We have too much power for that still. And so I want to hold that idea lightly and say, actually, I'm not sure that's the best metaphor for where we are right now, actually. Um, But I think some of what they offer is really helpful and creative. That's interesting that you say that, because I did read The Shaping of Things to Come, Mm -hmm. Hirsch and Frost. Yeah. Several years ago, well, I planted my congregation 10 years ago, so it would have been just a few years before that because it mm-hmm. it was it was like you were talking about the being interrupted book where it really turned mm. my theology upside down and, and forced me to rethink some things and re-engage Wesleyan theology even more mm-hmm. and it was you know it was so that was one of the things that really fired me up on planting yeah isn't that great like when you're messed with by a book and it makes you do something differently that's so wonderful isn't it (laughs) yeah yeah so if I can if I can mess with a few of my listeners that would be great yeah yeah, that's right yeah (laughs) I know I think there's lots you know if I were in America right now I think I'd also be reading some of the books around like Willie Jennings after whiteness and stuff like that looking at some of the racial justice issues because it strikes me that 
not all of America, but much of America has accidentally ghettoized itself. And so the place of encounter and fearless encounter and how we as the church step into that kind of daring to love our neighbours properly. Like there's a load around that, I think, that, yeah, it's just important to think through. And so, I mean, it, not that I'm not reading that for here, but almost everything around blackness and the experience of African-Americans is just earthed in the American experience and the British experience has to do the work for itself in some ways because it's so different but uh, there's there's loads out there I mean I think once people start reading any of these books there'd be like a rabbit trail into mm-hmm. whole other ways of thinking wouldn't there and ways of reading and digging in so yeah there's like probably a load that I've not remembered that have been really influential but that that would get people started wouldn't it if they'd not read any of them Right. It would, it would be a good place to start. So what are you working on now? Like what's the thing that really fires you up? Two or three different things, I suppose. Like, so one thing is I'm involved in a research project on church on the margins, which is looking at how do people who are marginalized, however you understand that word, how do they encounter church and how is church not just about them or for them, but with them and by them and so I'm immersed in a lot of research around that looking at peer-to-peer learning and saying to people tell us what church is like for you and why and how does God encounter you here and what's missing and those kinds of questions that's a longitudinal project so that's a three-year research project and that's been really stretching wow like even just trying to figure out how to meet people you meet those people what you've discovered what I've discovered or our team has discovered is that there are so many gatekeepers mm. in church who kind of mediate for and stop or give permission or speak for it's been a very interesting experience so that's like something that's really intriguing to me is how when we're at church we're not just um, done to like we're not just a transactional thing or we don't have the equivalent of clients in the pews, you know, but that actually the church is a participatory living community with everybody breathing life in and bringing their gifts and genuinely leading one another in faith. So those kinds of things are, I find really interesting. I'm doing a lot, you know, obviously in my role as principal, I've been doing a lot around ethical leadership mm. and institutional leadership and some of the challenges that, um, a market economy creates for Christian institutions and how we navigate that and what does it mean to lead well as a Christian and how far is it possible for an institution to be Christian in its values and approach um, without being weak so that's something that's yeah intriguing me I guess and then the other thing that I'm immersed in quite a lot is about um, the community engagement in practices of justice that are very low-key um so we've we've stolen back stolen we're, we're guerrilla gardening some land uh, in our community that we have reclaimed from waste I'll put it that way it doesn't belong to us but we have reclaimed it and um, we're doing that for a whole load of reasons including justice reasons but climate reasons and health community reasons and so I'm immersed a lot in thinking about climate justice and environmental racism 
and what that looks like in America, like in well near you actually, it looks like water, doesn't it? Like mm-hmm. Flint experience. Here it's air pollution. Similar um, situation altogether. You know the the air pollution is affecting the poorest communities significantly, and so how do we step into new spaces? So that those are some of the things. I mean, I'm obviously like I'm kind of I have a theme in there, but they're all all slightly different, and some of them are more just ongoing practice and somewhere deeper reflection I suppose yeah and there's so much to do and then you, you know you get excited about all these different things you're like I, like I always have to say to myself okay I can't do all of them so pick no. two or three yeah do them well and you know trust God to raise up people to address the other issues yeah yeah, exactly. And meet people and amplify them who are doing some of these good things. So, yeah, I don't know. Have you spoken or do you know Rashonda and Todd Womack? Yeah, they were on the podcast. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. 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 And so I think, you know, people like that where you say, actually, these are people who are like world leaders in this. How do we amplify them? How do we get them known? How do like all of those kinds of conversations or how do we hear what they're saying and enact it? What always strikes me when I'm talking to Todd and Rashonda is that as much as they talk what they actually really need is for the church to take action on what they're saying right and so I think one of the questions for all of us in leadership is how do we hear the right voices and then actually not just hear them but take action around what is being said to us and that's quite a huge there's there's a big difference in that right. and so yeah trying to bring bring those tables together but yeah like it's like a patchwork quilt isn't it you know mm-hmm. each one of us like I couldn't do what you do you're not going to do what I do oh isn't that great like God's just so good that there's this economy of the kingdom mm-hmm. that spreads out the abilities and the desires and the interests I suppose so it's exciting to see what uh, what the church is going to look like in a few years I feel like especially with the pandemic it's mm. forcing dross to come to the surface but you know that's when the spirit is able to skim it off and purify us a little bit more make us look more like him and oh which was one of the things i wanted would you just talk about this idea of corporate holiness a little bit oh yeah i mean i just love wesley so much i I came out of the catholic tradition so there's a long story how i ended up in the church of nazarene but and being introduced to wesley and Wesleyan Arminian theology and all of that was just, I was just so hopeful, you know, I saw, I was looking through your bio and your emphasis on corporate holiness. So I thought if you just take a few minutes and share about that. Well, so, I mean, we're, we're mostly familiar with the idea of individual holiness and we know pretty much what we think that means. Corporate holiness takes it to say, actually your holiness and my holiness are intertwined and that the way our holiness firstly as individuals is shaped is in relationship so it doesn't matter how holy you are in relationship with God if you beat up your husband every day that's not something's not right there is almost always an interconnected interrelational aspect to holiness so that's the first thing is that my holiness and your holiness are connected through relationship but then the idea that a group of people are greater than the sum of their parts. And so our holiness together um, has to be light and yeast and salt. And it's a grain of salt lacks a little punch, but a 
teaspoon changes the recipe. Mm. And so I think the notion of corporate holiness is around that kind of analogy that says actually the truest reflection of our holiness isn't that I'm a good person, but that we together are light and salt and yeast in a community or a space and place. And, you know, Wesley was very clear, like he practiced the ordinances of faith. Um, he was very akin to the Catholic practices of sacrament, you know, that high Anglican Catholic and in his instance, but, you know, the notion of being attendant to the ordinances of scripture and baptism and sacrament and works of mercy and acts of justice and piety, like all of these things were woven together. And again, like your piety is strengthened by corporate engagement in piety. Singing together does something different to you physiologically mm -hmm. than just singing in your shower. And it's a mystery, but it's true. It's euphoria, right? And so there's something about the gathered space of practicing holiness and then the testimony of holiness that's sharpened in community as well. So it's quite a complex idea. I mean, it's opposite, you know, if, if, if we're thinking about corporate holiness, we can also then begin to think about what does corporate sin look like, which is really uncomfortable for Nazarenes. A lot of people have an allergic reaction to this idea. But actually, um, I'll put my pennies worth in, which is that, you know, there is absolutely no doubt that an organization or a group of people can be declaring themselves holy, but can be acting in unholy ways. And to the extent that they're acting in unholy ways, they're not truly holy. Right. That's corporate sin. And so, you know, corporate sin in my mind's eye would be a group of people colluding to oppress women or a group of people colluding to support apartheid or a group of people colluding to, you know, and you can kind of name your list, but the minute, we together as a group are acting in this way. The call to our holiness isn't just for individuals, it's for our whole being to repent and to declare that we've sinned. And it might be that a named person does it on our behalf, like the general superintendent, as they have done actually said, we were wrong to be silent in the time of apartheid. That then can set you on a trajectory towards corporate holiness again but you can't do that until you acknowledge the sin that's been the huge hiccup i think in the nazarene church like the language of complicit or sin or you know systemic racism for a very current idea people really react to that but actually i think it's quite important that we understand that these things taint and shape whole communities of people protecting a pedophile in the midst not addressing domestic violence you know there's any number of things that we've accidentally made like individual that guy's a racist he's a domestic abuser she's a gossip and we locate it in the individual but actually if she's a gossip that affects all of us if he's domestically violent it affects all of us and you know once you begin to extend these ideas into that direction it forces you to think again about the nature of the church actually and the grace and what it means to be light, salt, yeast. And that's the kind of metaphor I always come back to. I mean, it's, it's that kind of an idea and it's quite powerful, I think, um, in terms of calling people to their best selves and also helping corporate community accountability happen. So like who is responsible for this community becoming more holy? Well, we all are. 
mm-hmm. not the pastor. It's it's that kind of thing. Who is responsible for discipling the young people? Well, we all are. It's not the youth leader. And when we begin to take seriously our role within the corporate, I think it probably shapes and forms us differently. I think that's really hard in a group of 3,000. So there's something about intimacy and knowledge and life together and truth telling that then becomes part of the conversation as well. Yeah. In the pandemic, I don't know in America, but here the pandemic has done this. At the moment, if a church is allowed to meet, it's allowed to meet in a group of 30. Um, But actually, most churches haven't been meeting like that for a year now. And yet the church is still alive. Then the question is, you know, what is the church doing? Well, the church is meeting over Zoom or it's meeting in small clusters of sacred space. It's quite interesting, I think. I don't know. I just heard, I think it might have been Alan Hirsch again recently. He was talking about learning to play chess and how quite often when you're little to learn to play chess well, somebody will take the queen off the board. And so you begin to learn how to play the pieces and the power. And then when the queen comes back on the board later on, you're invincible because you know how to strategize around all these other pieces. And the analogy is that, you know, the queen in this instance is the the morning service Mm, and she's off the board. And so all of these other pieces have had to come into play. Now, my observation in Britain is she isn't always off the board because some pastors have spent 60% of their time preparing a Zoom service for a Sunday, mm-hmm. which means the queen is very much on the board. The question about what, what discipleship looks like then becomes quite a big thing, I think. And what if it's not what we thought it was, church? You know, there's just some big questions at play, I think, at the moment. Yeah. We launched a couple of dinner churches out of our local community. I feel like we've started all over, you know, like we're planning all over again. It's so interesting, isn't it? So do you, would you say like, if you were mapping yourself onto a scripture around that, where would you say you've ended up? Like, are you Acts 2 or Ephesians 3? Like, do you know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. Well, we're definitely yeah, we're definitely back at Acts. I feel like we're probably more like Lydia and all the women sitting around the lake, you know, going, okay, well, what do we do next? Uh, Come to my house, you know, kind of like, and it's, it is really like, Mm -hmm. we've made the joke that we don't plan more than three, four weeks out because we don't know what it's going to look like. Well, I don't know, maybe you're just tired, but like, (laughs) I think when you stop and step back from that, there's something so liberating and like what's the spirit doing so let's assume that god doesn't desire death and devastation but that the coronavirus is just doing what a virus does right mm-hmm. and so you know let's assume that god can work in all circumstances like what then is god working out or even let's assume that god uses times of great trial and tribulation to teach the church something of god's self like what god what is god saying to the church right now and i think it's amazing like in my sense of the world around me here a lot of churches here will close as a result of the pandemic and it will actually just have brought forward what was an inevitable end but actually you know death is not a bad thing in faith death is what happens before resurrection and so what needs to die to live in new ways like I just think there's something there and if we if we could take a deep enough breath and pause and pray and reflect well enough and that's like my worry is that we're so busy 
in this survival mode that a load of us are struggling to just stop. I mean, I'm speaking to myself here, you know, that man, just stopping. So my husband is a school teacher and his school yesterday had a non-screen day. That is brilliant. And so he was like, well, I have work to do. And I'm like, don't do it on your screen. And he's like, yeah, okay. So he took the complete day away from any computer and phone. And he's like a different person. I mean, not because he was mad, but just because it's exhausting. And so I said to our team, I had a team meeting yesterday morning with our extended team. And I just said, you know, Andrew's school has done this. Isn't that like godly? <laughs> like, isn't that brilliant? And we were all like, yeah. And so I sent out the reminder email today to our team to say Fridays are no email days at the college. And they have been for a long time. But just to remind you, like no email on Fridays and let's try and find a screen free day where we can just be. And I sent another email just saying like, like permission to stop. And so I've had so many conversations with our team, you know, it's like 37, 40 people who've come back to me and just said, Deirdre, you know, when you said that I could stop and take a nap, wow, that made a difference to my my experience of being able to stop. And I just thought, yeah, it's really interesting. Like we know we need to stop. We know Sabbath is good. We know that our perspective changes when we've had a nap and some food and been reminded that we're not the only prophet in Israel (laughs) or whatever, you know, like we know all of these things. (laughs) but giving ourselves permission to stop that's hard and so sometimes you just need somebody to say like okay just stop it's interesting isn't it it's we are so strangely wired though ministers are the worst I think they get themselves confused with God so easily yeah the pandemic has been I'm pretty good about making sure I take my Sabbath on Mondays I'm being more introverted anyway. It doesn't take much mm-hmm. to get drained. And so even yesterday, I really hit a wall and I, I started to feel guilty. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to feel guilty. I'm in it for the long game, not, you know. Yeah. And I guess for you, like for me as well, like one of the, the things about leadership is then giving other people the same permission we have. And I think in a fixed world, so I don't know what your congregation's like, but like, in our world, you know, when people are working hard, they don't have the luxury actually of a midweek break. Mm-hmm. And so we're expecting them to be there on a Saturday, Sunday or whatever. Now let's do a self check here. Like, could we do that if we'd worked without the Monday, Thursday? Could right. we honestly add Sunday three Zoom meetings or or whatever? You know, like I'm not, I'm, I don't know what you do, but I'm just, I'm thinking from my own self, like actually the luxury and the ownership of your own time is one of the pastoral privileges. It seems to me that we take for granted very easily. Mm-hmm. And that sense of saying to people, actually, it is all right to not show up because yeah. that's rest. And it is all right. We're not going to judge you if you say I'm having a timeout day mm-hmm. from people. Like we're going to trust that you can worship in that. And like, it's very difficult, isn't it? Because you can hear the counter argument. Oh, it's so important to gather and be refreshed and pray and yada, yada. But actually screens are exhausting or life's just so tiring. How do we help build deep breaths for people? Like there's just so much there, I think, to to think about in leadership and our role in saying, you know, what's the worst that can happen if you don't, if we don't do that this weekend? In fact, you know, what if, Every second week, we're not going to have a Zoom service. Every second week is going to be you, like if you promise us that you're going to talk to God 
and then the next week we'll check in what what how did God speak like what were the God sightings oh that would be so liberating Mm. somebody saying to me don't turn your screen on on Sunday Deirdre you've been on a screen 24 7 Mm. sit go for a walk breathe deeply eat good food pray with Andrew and then come tell us what God did to restore you like that would be so freeing now nobody's saying that to me (laughs) yeah no our, our service is half past 10 on a Sunday morning, <laughs> you know, yeah. but in our culture, it just, most people only come twice a week, twice a month anyway. So yeah. whether they lock, whether they're logging on or they're coming in person. Yeah. Um, and, th- and those are the ones who have strong relationships with God. You know, yeah. I have, but we, we did incorporate actually the, our God at work stories, which is just old school mm-hmm. testimony Sunday kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because we're not seeing each other very much and you know we're trying to get their their attention focused back on god is still moving um he's still moving in the midst of it and so let's when we gather let's tell those stories of how he's working in the small ways and yeah how permission works and how sabbath keeping works and what rest looks like and what restoration looks like and i suppose you know how we embed the like we would call it faithful regularity we had in the Longsight Church I pastor, I would say we have a very, very faithful group of people who would come even once a month, but actually they're deeply committed people of faith. And so how do you honor that? And then in this kind of very extraordinary time, how do you help people? How do we pray for each other? The um, Imagine Projects has this idea of TTT, this time tomorrow. Uh, Tell me, what will you be doing this time tomorrow? And so this is in a Sunday service. And then what's one challenge you'll face this time tomorrow? And what's one way we can pray for you for this time tomorrow? And then they pray for the person. And that's always been really rich as well. That kind of reminding people that tomorrow the the covering of faith is the whole community is covering them with prayer, really. That kind of a notion. And I think anything like that that says to people like you matter, your life matters, God's caring about your life. It's just loads there, isn't there? It's a really interesting. Is your congregation, would you say it's quite a mixed group? Like, is it intergenerational or reflects the community around you? Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what it really looks like when it comes. Like, like part of me is not sure. I have about 50% are still virtual and then about 50 are coming in person. Um, But yeah, we have, you know, young children, toddler age up to our seniors and it's, it's fairly evenly dispersed. We have a lot of non-nuclear family. Like, so mm-hmm. you think about your nuclear family, like that would be the minority in our congregation. So most yep. of them are single or single again, um, yep. for whatever reason, with some blended families where people are his, hers, ours, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we're over, I would say about 60% of our congregation are previously unchurched. Yeah. Lovely. So yeah, they either come out of Catholic Lutheran background, but sacrament only. So a lot of a lot yeah. of people will go make their sacraments and mm-hmm. they go to catechism, but they don't they don't participate. They don't have a living faith. They don't go on yeah. Sundays, and mm-hmm. so that's a big chunk of our mm-hmm. congregation, which is my background, my husband and I, and mm-hmm. not as racially diverse as I'd like us to be. Even though our community is, I mean, we live mm-hmm. we're 15 minutes from Dearborn, which you know, Dearborn is, has more, um, Middle Eastern people 
than any other city outside of the out of the Middle East. Hmm. So Dearborn no is yeah, so high, highly Middle Eastern, and then they'd be split between uh, Orthodox Christians and Muslims. Arabic speaking, Arabic, Arabic, yeah, Arabic, yep, Arabic or, or Farsi. Yeah, okay. yeah, a lot of Iraq, Iran, Lebanon, uh, Syrian. So yeah, we and Indian, and then Indian families too. So we have we have some. It'll be interesting to see what happens when we come back together. Well, I really appreciate you coming on here, and I know I've like totally kept you over time. But anyway, it was just good, good stuff. All right. Well, if you're back in Flint, I'll make my way up there and try to meet you in person. Oh, that'd be lovely. Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, you're always welcome over here. We've got lots of things going on here. More than welcome to come. <laughs> yeah. Well, I would love to come. If nothing else, to take the John Wesley tour. So. Oh yeah, completely. Or do one of the Wesley courses. We do a whole master's program in Wesley study. Really? Yeah, you'd probably lap it up. It's brilliant. It's like historical and then pastoral and social practices. And you kind of dig into the meat of it. It's quite a different, it's very different than a US master's program. But you, from the sounds of it, you'd probably be like, I don't know, meat to your soul. <laughs> <laughs> it would sound really, really exciting. I love it. So I'll start with some books. <laughs>